Hello again, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix. I'm your host, Dylan Clark Moore, and today we're going to be talking about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is currently available to stream on Netflix in Canada. Today's episode of the Netflix Podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. The Netflix Podcast is also a proud member of the Electric Streams Podcast Network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original series, subscribe to Electric Streams Media on your podcast platform of choice. Before we get into anything, I do want to issue a slight warning that some of the language you are going to hear in this episode may not be suitable for all listeners. But that's all I wanted to warn you about. Now, let's get into it. I'm sitting here with a woman I've really been looking forward to talking to. She's an academic and the narrator of Liminalia. Welcome to Nami Lee. Aw, thank you. That's such a kind description. My gosh. <laughs> well, I mean, very <laughs> straightforward <laughs> words, but I appreciate your grace. Um, okay, I'll ask you the icebreaker question I ask everybody. What cool. have you been watching on Netflix recently? Oh, God, that I have to admit to, right? Um, actually, I've been binge-watching um, Scandal, Shonda Rhimes' Scandal yes. recently. It's just my, it's like my go-to. You know, I need to watch something that makes me feel like something is happening around me and with, like, the quick cuts and everything. Right. You know, it makes me feel good. Like, yeah, that's right. These are busy people. <laughs> this is what busy working people do. So It's a little bit of a break from the, uh, oh my God, the yes. kind of slow pace that you're used to. Yes, exactly. You know, everything that they do is so life and death, you know, and I just, I, f- I feel so far removed from that life. So. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's hard for things to feel urgent when you're dealing with like 15th century literature. Totally, totally. And um, like even so I study Charles Dickens and it does come up in odd, unexpected ways. But yeah, I'm not used to um, I have to kind of fabricate the illusion that, no, I need to get this done or else. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> so I wonder if uh, if maybe someday you'll be the, the Chandra Rhymes of oh academia God, and try to figure out a way to, so to sex it up. Nice. And... <laughs> All right. Well, the movie that we are here to talk about this episode is from the year 1953 from director Howard Hawks. We're going to be talking about gentlemen prefer blondes. Or do they? Do they? (laughs) I never understood why the movie. Oh, I mean, I know why the movie was named. It was named after the novel. But I just, you know, that doesn't like that didn't seem to come up for me a whole lot when I was watching the film. Not at all. Like but I the, just I there's think... so much adoration for oh right for, for Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe, Monroe right yeah. like, she literally turns heads and stops conversations whenever she goes into a room yeah but it doesn't Jane doesn't Jane Russell get that too her character get that as well I don't know if it's that she gets it or if she gets like it by reflection by uh. just always entering rooms with Marilyn Monroe see this is my personal bias like I look at Jane Russell and I think that she has so much 
charisma that mm-hmm. I kind of like my attention actually goes to her when she's next to Marilyn Monroe rather than the other way around. So I'm just like, oh, why is this blonde thing so important? <laughs> <laughs> well, if we can stick a pin in that for a second, we can definitely come back to it. Yeah. So let's take a look at how Netflix describes this movie. Uh, so first up, when you hover over the title, it says a blonde showgirl is unknowingly tracked by an investigator hired by her fiance's father. But the detective only has eyes for her brunette friend. Which, I mean, is, I'd say, not bad. Yeah, actually, that's much better than the IMDb description, which is like, oh, two showgirls are working their way over to Paris. And it's sort of like, nope, they're not. They work in Paris and before, but not during. And what is going on? I don't don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those instances that Netflix doesn't seem to have another way of saying things. So the, (laughs) the second description is actually the same. The genres this movie belongs to, according to Netflix, are classic movies, classic comedies, comedies, and romantic comedies, and it's described as both witty and romantic. Yeah, I guess I guess I could see that. I guess Netflix is not fancy enough to include things like social satire. <laughs> okay, so Gentlemen for Blondes, uh, why was this the movie that you chose? Um... Well, actually, it wasn't originally. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Originally, it was Pan's Labyrinth. And maybe I just I had it, I, like I'd planned to watch it or something like that. And my mind's eye was like, yeah, it was on Netflix. I'm so sure. Um, it was on Netflix at some point, And then it just disappeared. And so um, I had watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes for the first time. Um, I'd kind of, you know, I'd known of it before as one of those classic movies that you know, we're just kind of floating in the culture, but um, I'd never really, I'd never really taken a moment. So I just, I think one evening I was bored and I watched it and I I really thought it was, like, I thought it was really interesting. And I, you know, I I thought I can see how this movie could piss off so many people. And yet I think there are, I don't know, I think it taps into some really relevant conversations about female desire and you know uh, like even everything that's going on with all of the sexual harassment cases and everything you know what it what it is to be a woman in the entertainment industry and so forth so yeah I I was kind of pleasantly surprised by it but I don't know if everyone would agree with me or not well it's certainly beloved yeah Um, and I mean the word that comes up multiple times in at least the Wikipedia entry on it is the word iconic, especially from the, the right. final, or not the final, the second to last Diamonds Are Girls Best Friend sequence where she's in the dress. Was <laughs> <laughs> it the, the pink dress with the red exactly. background? Exactly, and all of the rhinestones mm-hmm. and yeah, and the kind of BDSM-y chandelier at the very beginning. Do you remember that? Well, it's not just one, it's all of them. Like the entire set is dressed in with women dressed as chandeliers. Yeah, that's right. Which I mean, like you said, I mean the if you can forgive me uh pulling back the curtain a little bit cuz I'd never seen the movie before. Mm-hmm. Um it was one that honestly if you hadn't picked it, I probably would have never gotten around to watching it cuz I'm never yeah. just sitting there like I'm really in the mood for some, like, classic Hollywood yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's just, it never jumps to the top of the list. Yeah, um, and I think I was going through a 50s phase at that time, too. Like, I was watching, I'd watch Singing in the Rain for the first time. Oh, okay. And then I was like, so what do I watch? I re-watch Roman Holiday or I watch this other movie. Huh. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the message that you sent me about it 
after I said, deal, I've never seen it, or any Marilyn Monroe, actually, which we can come back to, mm-hmm. um, you said, it's a hilarious one that you can either read as totally sexist, as either a totally sexist portrayal of women or as a totally badass one. And so I was definitely looking out for that. Ah. You know, I was looking through that lens while I was watching it. And that Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend sequence in particular, I was like, like, there's a lot going on there in that you've got uh, Lorelai Lee, the Marilyn Monroe character, that she is to anybody except the person she's I don't want to say preying on but I mean that's not an inaccurate term either <laughs> but I mean she's it, I mean the word gold digger seems so negative and the movie is also yeah. negative like it is critical mm. of her for it but her attitude towards romance is that uh, there's nothing wrong with having looking for financial stability first and then figure and then right. you know navigating the rest of the person's personality to figure right. out who the right match is um, and then the whole song is just about how diamonds are a girl's best friend and that even as the man's personality falls apart and even as her own body gets old and frumpy, mm-hmm. you know, the diamond is going to be a reminder of, you know, the perfection that she was in that moment. Um, so it's all about like the acquisition of material goods, which the movie is kind of critical of her for doing. Right, um, like stealing tiaras and right. things. Well, she didn't steal it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but she had a scheme, for sure. So you've got her as the main figure. So that's mm. like, I'm not going to say problematic, but it's like, there's there's layers to that. Totally. And then supporting her are these bland, doting men who are all in tuxedos. And they're the same kind of man that we've seen all the way through the movie mm-hmm. in all the supporting men that they're just these guys who cannot help themselves when Marilyn Monroe is around. So it's this criticism of men for just being like dogs as soon as they Uh see a pretty face. But then underneath them, you've got these women who are literally, the rest of the women on stage are literally props for the whole thing. Exactly. So there's just, there's so much (laughs) going on. And ultimately I ended up just, you know, compared to Scott Pilgrim where I was like, well, everybody in this movie sucks. So I don't like this movie. For this, I was like, okay, everybody sucks, yeah. so I like this movie, <laughs> which is, I don't know, maybe that's something wrong with me. But. I don't think so, because I, I, I think that's one of the things that I really like about this movie. So, you know, I think I mentioned earlier that one of the descriptors should have been that it's it's social satire, and it's kind of, it reminds me of... Uh, it reminds me of Oscar Wilde's. Have you ever read The Importance of Being Earnest? Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, like, it reminds me of that in that like all of the characters are kind of despicable. There's no, um, you know, they're reenacting these social maxims, but they kind of take them to extremes. And in doing so, they reveal like all these contradictions and flaws about those social maxims. So you have like, you know, marrying prudently, right? Like I think that this is, you still find like hints of this social maxim in like, I don't know, even TV drama today, right? You have to marry somebody who is like, talking about scandal earlier, somebody who isn't political poison, so to speak, and all that. So this idea, marrying prudently, you have the social maxim, then it's taken to an extreme by character, a character like Lorelai, who is kind of single-mindedly, you know, fixated on money-making and somebody who has a valet accompanying them on a boat. But then, of course, at the very end, what's really interesting is, because you mentioned that that this is the only thing that she's looking after. But um, at the very end, when she talks to Esmond Sr., um, the father of the guy that she's after, um, and she says, well, if you had a daughter, 
wouldn't you want her to marry a rich man? You know, as a wealthy man, wouldn't you want your daughter to marry a rich man? Wouldn't you want her to have all of the things that she could possibly want in order to make her happy? And, and he kind of goes, well, I mean, yes, I would. And it kind of kind of gives a lie to that well he go, he is the one who has been saying all this time that well you're not good enough for my son you're just you're just an entertainer you're an actress god forbid my son cannot be with an actress who's only out for his money but then but then she says but wait no this is something that you already do yourself and why is it so wrong for me to pursue those same interests even if it is to a, like an ex- an insane or parodic degree you know and so it just it reminds me of that kind of uh, late 19th century early 20th century social satire um and the fact that i mean it is the word wild again (laughs) yeah totally (laughs) the fact that people are i mean some people are and some people aren't but at least the main characters are painfully self-aware to the point that Mm -hmm. they can just participate in like biographical witty repartee with people about you know <laughs> the, about the type that they represent right exactly which is which is i mean in terms of the fun of the movie that is all of the fun of the movie for me exactly. is the banter and the cleverness and the wittiness that netflix actually accurately caught like anytime jane russell opens her mouth is just i gold. know i know <laughs> her and also Henry Spofford Third. That kid was great. I died every time he had a lot. I don't think that man's intentions are very pure. Well, I'll help you for two reasons. One, because, oh God, <laughs> I forget what the first one, but the second one was because you have very strong animal magnetism. <laughs> Oh, the first is because he's too young to be arrested. <laughs> right. Right. He knows he can get away with it. Oh, God. Oh, man. Like, that kid was just... <laughs> I mean, that, ki- that kid was such a perfect, like, tiny encapsulation of the tone of the movie. Exactly. That it's just like, you're small and ridiculous, <laughs> but, like, I'm not going to deny myself the pleasure of enjoying watching exactly. this Exactly. Exactly. With his little lisp and everything. Oh, uh, my God. With animal magnetism. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that led to the, I mean, probably the most ridiculous, well, not the, no, I can't even say that, but one of the most ridiculous bits in the movie, when Lorelai has the blanket, oh, the blanket. wrapped yes. around her neck as she's stuck out the porthole. Oh and my then the, God. The, the hand. The creepy old codger is kissing Stop the that. <laughs> <laughs> Go away now. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, you put it perfectly when you said that, you know, like normally if this was... If I had met you in real life, I would probably think you were a despicable, entitled little prick. But instead, you're hilarious, and I'm just enjoying that. And I, I think that's what I like about uh, this, like this genre of satire. You know, there are no, you know, social boundaries that are really being transgressed here. In fact, the movie kind of doubles down on social, like ceremonies and distinctions and mannerisms and all of these things like all of these social regulations it kind of doubles down on them in order to like as part of its satire and and it also relies on those social distinctions to produce dramatic tension like you know the fact that it is probably socially in unacceptable as well as super illegal to be rifling through a journalist's you know room and um and so on and so forth, but it kind of uses it to add interest to the story, and oh, I love it. 
like I said, I really appreciated being able to lean into the silliness of it. And I mentioned the the CHC earlier, and I might even be using that phrase wrong or misapplying it because it's such a film twenty thing. Um, did you ever take film twenty? The the no. like intro to film class? No, I, I, I guess I it's never not have. twenty anymore because they all have four digit codes now. So sorry. So what is CHC? Uh, classic Hollywood cinema. Oh. So it's the idea of. Um, I'm totally going to fuck this up, so I'll just edit it out <laughs> if I do. But it's this this style of movie making that, you know, it's often a musical. It's all based, like, the, the main thrust of it is based on a will they, won't they, some mm, kind of romantic plot. Right. Um, like I said, there's usually musical element to it. And then at the end, there's always a wedding. Right. <laughs> like, literally always yeah. a wedding. Um, so there's these conventions that it's navigating through. So it's, like, this really familiar framework that... Um, I mean, at, bef- going into the movie not knowing what it was and not not really knowing what to expect once I saw that we were heading in that direction. And once mm. you have the investigator, for instance, just all of a sudden throw up his hands in the air because a girl said that he yeah. loved him. And, and everything <laughs> gets like very, very, very neatly, like almost disgustingly neatly in this totally. tight little package with the double wedding at the end. Like that's all to serve this this common narrative of classic Hollywood cinema. Uh, gotcha. um, but it gives you a chance to... As long as you fit within that framework, you can do really right. whatever the hell else you want, including, uh, you know, really having fun <laughs> with with all these all these tropes and all these. Yeah, I think you're totally you're um, you hit it right on the nose. Like um, the way that everything does really neatly, <laughs> you know, that Jane Russell's character Dorothy does a dance in the courtroom. Yeah. All of these things, like, of course it. None of these things, these things can only happen in a fictitious Hollywood universe. Right. They could never happen otherwise in the same way that like you wouldn't take all of these. Um, you might not be as like openly materialistic as um, as Lorelai's character is and all of this stuff. And yeah, it does. It really does invite you to kind of celebrate in the excess of the film yeah, as much as extra. the characters <laughs> yeah. do. Exactly. Right, yeah, and there's that shopping spree in France too. The shameless, <laughs> like, designer, designer, and the ridiculously happy um, and not at all French-seeming uh, taxi driver who was just like, <laughs> sure, no problem, whatever you ladies want. Oh, we love, I love crass tourists that just order me around. Yes, it's wonderful. Well, I have to imagine working in the service industry, if you see somebody thrown around that much bank, oh, that, yeah, that's you true. Know, you're expecting the tip that he gets at the end. And <laughs> he seems true. even pleasantly surprised by how generous it was yeah, after spending the whole right. day with these women. Yeah. So I am, I am curious about... Um, you know, Lorelai and the blonde thing and, and all of that. You know, you said you didn't really get it. Like, you didn't really, you're like, why is this gentleman prefer blondes? Why aren't, why isn't right. this billed as like the Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe show? Exactly. And I just, I, yeah, it's funny because I, I was thinking about this film as like a kind of experiment in two different types of female desire. You know, you have Lorelai, who's, uh, she's like this caricature of the female or feminine, you know, super stereotypical feminine desire of material wealth and material possessions, right? And then you have this Jane Russell character who is like a, you know, kind of caricature of female sexual desire, or at least she starts as a character of that. But of course, she ends up, you know, she starts off just wanting 
um, to look at men as objects of sexual desire, but then ends up actually just falling in love with this one guy, which is kind of, she shows this sort of development, I guess, which is not really as interesting to me as Mar- Marilyn Monroe's character. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, no, I just found Jane Russell's character really charismatic. Like, as you say, there's something about the way that she embodies the wit that she... Um, like that that she has, you know, ready at her fingertips at any given moment that I just find really captivating and um and I really did think that anytime all of these men would start staring along at the both of them that they were staring at both of them. Like at the beginning the relay team I think it was um were saying like if the ship sank and you could only save one of them, which one would it be? And and the guy that, was that he's sinking, yeah, exactly. Like, oh yeah, they're they're not sinking. Like he, they don't choose, you know. And so I, I guess I just always assume that. Oh, okay, so it's the pair of them. It's not just the Marilyn Monroe thing, but yeah, maybe. But I think I think yeah. like part of the part of their dynamic and part of the whole thing is that Lorelai always overshadows Dorothy. Mm. Um, <clears throat> like any time that the two of them are talking, and then somebody sees Marilyn Monroe. Right. Uh, you know, there's there's that, uh, you know, there's some kind of reference to the fact that, like, oh, you know, now she's got my attention. Like, the main event has finally arrived. Right. And that's why for Dorothy, when the investigator, whose name I'm totally forgetting. um, Ernie Malone. Malone. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Okay. I had IMDb on the ready, but you were faster. <laughs> um, so, I mean, like, part of malone in his skills of observation Mm -hmm. he notices this and he picks up on it and he plays on it when he talks to dorothy and he says well do you mind if i prefer you better and she's like well you just said the magic words now let's kiss (laughs) because finally somebody seems to genuinely be interested in her first like they're interested in the two of them as an item Mm -hmm. but they also probably want to bring along a wingman to talk to dorothy so they can get the time alone with lorelei like everybody's asking to sit at lorelei's table they're not asking to sit at the two women's table oh yeah you know yeah that does make sense and at the beginning gus when he comes into the like when he comes into the dressing room he goes lorelei hello miss shaw and then she or like oh hello dorothy and she goes hello to you too like she's clearly accustomed to this preferential treatment exactly i think that makes a lot of sense i think that one of the reasons that I was so distracted from the kind of competitive element of their relationship is that the friendship between I mean, I know that it's supposed to be a movie about two women pursuing different types of, you know, on their different courses of romancing or whatever. But it actually seems that the most interesting relationship in this whole movie is this French, the friendship between the two women that, you know, no matter what happens, they always stand by each other. You yeah. know, even when the, you know, presumably the love of her life starts, um, Malone starts saying, well, you know, why are we only blaming um, Sir Francis for his behavior? Why, why not Lorelai? And she, you know, without even missing a beat, Dorothy goes, wait a minute. No, Um I may talk about Laura, like the only person who's allowed to say anything about right. Lorelai is me. Right. And she doesn't like stop that for a moment. And she doesn't even hesitate when she finds out finally that Malone is the detective. She immediately decides to stand by her friend no matter what happens. Um, right. To the point of absurdity. To the point of standing yeah. in for her for, for <laughs> getting arrested. Yeah. You know, that's so not unrealistic. Not yeah. even a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, their friendship is totally unquestioned. Yeah. Like, 
the movie doesn't even flirt with the idea that there, even though there is some degree of jealousy mm-hmm. there from Dorothy to Lorelai, there's no question that theirs is, is the central supportive relationship. Exactly. Like when they when they run away from France, they do it together. That's never been in question. Mm-hmm. You know, they're willing to to go out of their way to do whatever it takes to support and defend each other. Like it's just. It was really nice and warm to see because, I mean, so much of the narrative right now is that like, like, and when I say now, I mean in 2017. Right. Is, you know, you're so often hearing uh, women talk about like women, like we need to have each other's backs. Like we Mm -hmm. can't just be like nitpicking and scratching at each other and tearing each other down. Like this isn't a competition. We need solidarity. Exactly. And yeah, no, you're right. That is such a, I, I didn't even think about it in that context, but that is a really topical issue. And, you know, there are so many debates about, it's kind of, you know, do we sort of unite under this like umbrella of what it means to be a woman and the kind of, um, and the advantages and disadvantages of being so or identifying as such? Or, you know, is it worth drawing distinctions? And it's such a complicated question. And yet in this movie, there's no complexity about it whatsoever. It's just whatever suggested or hinted rivalries might be between the two. um, You know, everything kind of stops when Lorelai is thinking, oh, here's a, she thinks, rich young man who really likes my friend. And even though he's not Henry Spofford III, you know, (laughs) I'm really glad that Lorelai has found someone suitable. And there's like real sincerity in her, um, in her tone when she says that. Like another thing too is that, you know, there are no other, I don't know, like there are no other characters. None of the men in this, the male characters in this movie um, have the benefit of a relationship that is so like in a lot of ways I think both like all as you said all the characters in this movie kind of suck but then <laughs> I really think that Lorelai and Dorothy are redeemed by their friendship and this kind of fierce loyalty that they have to each other and none of the other characters in the movie have access to anything like that um, which is really nice I kind of um, like I, I kind of really I, I really love that like I said earlier this reminds me a lot of Oscar Wilde in the sense that like Oscar Wilde's plays showed really interesting like at the center of importance of being earnest is this really interesting and complicated homosocial relationship that like may or may not have sexual undertones but that's not really the point the point is that like even though it kind of portends to be about a bunch of different love stories it really is about the two like the friendship between the two central men and in this case this movie really is about the two women and I heard this thing you know the final wedding scene um I heard this thing and I don't know if it's true I didn't research it or anything but um the image of Lorelai and Dorothy walking down the aisle together this is before it cuts to the two groomsmen right and like yes it is a double wedding this is like you know heteronormative fantasy to the extreme um but then the image apparently of Dorothy and Lorelai both in their wedding dresses walking down the aisle apparently like it's been kind of co-opted by the LGBT movement a little bit or like not not anymore I think this is a very outdated thing but like apparently it was the first film depiction of two women standing on the aisle almost suggesting like at least visually suggesting if not actually suggesting um 
like a non-heteronormative marriage. And so apparently this image... I kind of love that a lot. (laughs) Yeah, like I thought that was so cool. And that, you know, it did get co-opted in a movie that's otherwise about exclusively heterosexual relationships, right? Like it kind of co-ops it for a really interesting... So this is something I heard. I have no idea if it's true or not. And if it is, oh my God, I'm so sorry to all of of my (laughs) lovely LGBTQ plus allies that are like sitting horrified going, what did you say? What did you say in that podcast but um but yeah and i just i kind of love that because it brings us back to this whole like yeah it's a movie about romance between men and women but actually the most interesting thing is how these two women have bonded and kind of get through all of these trials and tribulations by their own talents really um well as i mentioned i hadn't done i hadn't seen any kind of marilyn monroe thing before like i'd only Mm -hmm. been aware of her from like posters and like towels at like shitty looking (laughs) you know hanging from tents at festivals and that sort of thing so i've just been like vaguely aware of her as an icon um and i didn't know anything about jane russell either like this was Mm -hmm. just a total cultural blind spot for me um so (laughs) in researching jane russell she's an interesting figure who just like politically I have no alignment with at all. Oh, really? Um, So for instance, I guess um, when she was quite young, she got pregnant and then ended up getting like a a back alley abortion, which went terribly and left her infertile. And so for the rest of her life, she was firmly against, like she was like pro-life to the extreme, like including cases of rape and incest. (gasps) Right, like that line that you're not supposed to cross. She she apparently like... Yeah, so she apparently crossed that. Oh my gosh. Um, and then in one of the last interviews of her life, she said, these days, uh, so this was in response to being asked about her, her alcoholism. And this is, uh, I believe she was, okay. uh, this is like 2003, I think. So mm-hmm. she was, you know, well into her, into her dotage. Um, <laughs> and she said, these days, I'm a teetotal, mean-spirited, right-wing, narrow-minded, conservative Christian bigot, <gasps> but not a racist. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for that. Oh, my God. That's so upsetting because I didn't know anything about Jane Russell aside from outside of this movie either. Right. But, no. also, but also a huge advocate for adoption and created the first, like, international adoption wow. situation or uh, organization. Oh, my God. She's so. that. I'm still rankling over the, like, that yeah. hardcore pro-life thing. Oh, my yeah. God. Ah. I didn't mean to, like, shatter <gasps> the glass for you or anything. But I was just like in watching the movie, I was like, Jane Russell's amazing. Where can I find more? And then I was I like, know. let's read her biography. And I was like, oh, oh no. dear. <laughs> oh, my God. I hate when that happens. Like people IRL disappointing my, <laughs> you know, my built in film. Yeah. Ugh. And I guess she only made about uh, 20 movies. And her decision to ultimately oh. retire from acting was just basically like I was in my 30s. And nobody's interested in women making movies when they're past oh. their 30s. And I was oh. like, oh no. Oh. This is all so this painful. This is going straight to my heart. Oh my God, that hurts. Oh. oh, man. I'm sorry to bum you out. No, that's okay. Just, oh man. I like, I know that um, really great actors are supposed to be able to s- separate their personal views and convictions and philosophies and all that from from their characters and I feel like as a viewer I should be able to do the same but sometimes I just can't I just can't get past that and I'm just like but I know that you're a terrible person (laughs) (laughs) um so I mean speaking mm -hmm. go ahead what were you gonna say oh well I said I was gonna say that this is also your first um Marilyn Monroe film right so with Marilyn Monroe like I said I've only had this like uh very vague strictly through 
the the icon status um knowledge of Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. I also knew how she died. I just wrote something recently that looked at like the it's kind of a fun piece where um we looked at the what are believed to be uh the last the last pictures have taken of 32 celebrities before they died. Oh, wow. Um, so for each one, I went and I found, like, how they died and how far from, like, their point of death this was and, right. and so on and so forth. Um, so I was aware that she had, like, met a tragic end, but I didn't know anything really about her life. And so in watching the movie, I just kind of had this idea of Marilyn Monroe as, like, this this blonde bimbo right. figure. Mm-hmm. So then in watching this, I was like, is this you or is this an act that you're doing Mm -hmm. and not really knowing how to navigate that without any like other knowledge. So I was like, is this where my image of you is coming from? Or is this just like you got by on your career strictly based on your looks and we just kind of like took your personality as Mm -hmm. was. But, and that was particularly when she was like doing the sleepy eyed flirty thing. I know, which I don't I, I, was, get. I was deeply confused. Like when she like <laughs> if somebody's approaching me with one eye closed <laughs> calling me daddy, like I'm gonna have exactly. some very confused feelings. I'm not <laughs> Yeah, that's confusion, not uh being o- them being overwhelmed by attraction. Yeah, I'm not going straight to arousal if that happens. I'm like, <laughs> wanna check if you're okay, like I'll let you sleep off whatever this is. Do you want me to check your vitals for you? <laughs> right. Like do you need to take something? But I mean, we're. But then I realized, like, we're supposed to read this as sexy because, like, right. as soon as she plants a kiss on her fiance, mm-hmm. like, he literally gets slide whistle sounds that happen, <laughs> like, yeah. and his eyes go all crazy and everything. Right. Um, so I was like, okay, so this is supposed to be sexy, and so I did a bit of reading, and I mean, I'm not going to pretend that this was any more in-depth research than Wikipedia, but <laughs> I mean, by this point, I mean Marilyn Monroe very much wanted to be taken seriously as an actress. Like, did mm-hmm. a ton of uh acting lessons with acting teachers oh. she she learned under a mime for a while to learn what? about you know the proper use of her body uh, she took singing lessons wow. when she was under contract from studios she uh you know even if she wasn't working she would uh she would just be on set and like be around so she wow. could just kind of like be in the world of acting to kind of understand it better oh my gosh um, but then Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is where she really solidified, like, the dumb blonde character right. that she played. And I was like, okay, so this is just an act that you just did really well. Mm-hmm. And there were some other times in the movie where she was, you know, a bit more wide-eyed. And I was like, oh, there's nuance to this that yeah. I wasn't appreciating because I was conflating who you are with this character. But also what I learned <laughs> in doing the reading is that all the way throughout her career... Marilyn Monroe would have a relationship with a man um, that, oddly enough, Wikipedia always described as a sexual relationship. Oh. I don't know if that's somebody what that just trying to build a narrative or what. But right. Um, so she before she started modeling, she was married to a guy, and she started getting interested in modeling. He really didn't want her to be involved in that world. Oh. Didn't want her to pursue a career. So she ended up doing it anyway. Ended up divorcing the guy. Okay. But then she would uh, she would start these relationships with these guys. I want to be careful with how I'm saying it to, to not make it sound like right. she's like preying on them or anything. But every step of the way, it seems, from every relationship, she got some kind of physical feature, some kind of enhancement to her body oh. that allowed her to advance her career. So there was one guy who she was dating for a while, and he 
uh, paid for her to fix a slight overbite. And, that, and this oh, is all stuff like before I we got to where she mean. is now. Yeah, she yeah. dated another guy who paid for her to get uh, some work done on her jawline. Oh. There was somebody else who she, uh, she was uh, when she was involved with uh, a certain studio, um, which she was there by way of a relationship that she mm-hmm. had with somebody else. That's when uh, you know she got her platinum blonde hair for the first time, and also oh. her hairline was raised on her head through electrolysis to like get a more like oh my perfect. Gosh. So like. She's like who Marilyn Monroe looks like is a deeply constructed thing. Wow. Like if you look at her from her original photography of uh-huh. her just like standing next to a, I think it's a bomb with like <sighs> pinup girl brown hair compared to where she was later in her career. Like there was work that went really? into that. Really? That's so interesting. So then comparing that to the character of Lorelai yeah. of this woman who used her sexuality to get where she wanted to be mm-hmm. in life and wasn't afraid to accept material goods from those relationships. I was like, maybe this is truer to life than... That's so interesting. Oh, because... So there's a really great line at uh, at the end. So when... Um, so it's when, like, Esmond Jr. is talking to her um, when they're in France. And she says... Well, he says, well, can you blame me for not trusting you after everything that you've done? And she, she says this wonderful thing. She says, it's men like you who have made me the way I am. And if you loved me at all, you'd feel sorry for the terrible trou- troubles I've been through instead of holding them against me. No, no, don't say another word. And it's just wonderful. <laughs> I love it. It's one of my favorite lines. And she kind of uses the tone that she adopts whenever she's trying to manipulate someone. So on the one hand, you kind of think, well, I mean, is she just saying this because it sounds good? Or on the other hand, is she saying this because... Lorelai slash maybe even Marilyn Monroe is very much a product of the demands that of her environment, of her social professional environment. Um, Like she had to kind of really aggressively use her sexuality in order to then gain the material resources that she needed in order to do something, whether that something was advance her career or, you know, live without having to worry about money and that kind of thing. Um, It's just really, um, it's really interesting. And when I was thinking about, you know, like Jane Russell's character, Dorothy, kind of is like, I mean, she sort of has a developmental arc. Like she goes from like, oh, I just want to ogle beautiful men to, oh, I've fallen in love with this one guy. Like there's kind of an arc there. Um, But then Lorelai's character doesn't really develop that much, but rather I feel like, you know, like we slowly start to get to know her as the movie progresses. And so it's not that she develops so much as like we develop through her because we slowly start to like the logic behind why she's so materialistic slowly starts to unwind as the movie goes along like you know the bit about the like well you don't want a loveless marriage do you and then and then Jane Russell character goes like a loveless marriage what are you talking about and then she says well yes if a woman is always and and I like how the focus is um, from the woman's perspective, if the woman is always worried about where her money's going to come from. She's not going to have time to love her husband. And it's like ridiculously, you know, extreme and over the top and kind of a black and white view of marriages. But um, but there is this inherent logic to what she's saying. Right. Yeah. It's And it's very like, I mean, if, like it's very, uh, I, I was in a, like a couple of years ago, I was TAing for a course and we were studying Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. You know, this the main, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but like the main argument is that like women need 
property. They need material resources in order to have the creative. And they need time. They need, like, a room of one's own in which they are not being um, – they're not playing the role of, you know, mother, helpmate, wife, etc. in order to pursue their own um, creative endeavors and professional endeavors. And that's kind of the argument that uh, Lorelai's character is making when she says – well, if you want a marriage, a loving marriage, this is what you need. You need not to be worried about money. And so this is how you go about it. And like, um, while on the one hand, it's sort of like, that's really extreme. On the other hand, it's sort of like, oh, okay, so there are layers to your really extreme logic here. Right. There's like a hierarchy of needs sort of logic. Yeah, totally. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you can't really worry about love if you need to worry about where the food is coming from. And to tie that back again to Marilyn Monroe... Um, there was a period in her life where, you know, modeling was doing okay. Like mm-hmm. the acting gigs weren't really coming in and she very famously posed nude. Right, yeah. In pictures that were released as a calendar. Um, and those pictures were then very famously, or at least one of them was very famously used by Hugh Hefner. Are you aware oh, of this whole thing? I'll come no. back to this in just a second. Yeah. Um, yeah, Marilyn Monroe's nudity is very, very interesting oh. and like deeply troubling. Oh my god! Um, okay. But the uh, the photo shoot that she did was her on her just laying nude on these like red sheets. Okay. And this news broke a couple. I believe it's a couple of years before Gentlemen Prefer Blondes came out, and oh. there was this big worry that this is going to be a huge scandal. That like, I mean, if you think of uh, you know some beauty pageants have like lost their crown because it turns out they did amateur porn oh, or, right, yeah. or whatever the case may be. So the big worry was that this was going to happen. And the decision was made that, no, we're going to own this. Ah. We're going to say, listen, I was hungry. I did what I had to do. This is what I had to support myself. So let's just get ahead of it um, and let's own it. And then she then developed a more like sexual persona when she was on red carpets and things like that. Like she started wearing tighter dresses. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and then the red background is, you know, to me, I don't know if this is intentional, but I'm thinking about oh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Oh my God. Where Lorelai's finally like just said like, fuck it, I'll be materialistic. Yeah. Now this is me owning the scene in front of a red background. You know what? I totally buy that because visually I thought it was really weird that they had a red background. <laughs> I was like, she's wearing a pink dress for God's sakes. What is this? I totally buy that as an interpretation because it's very... Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, my God. So much. So many things there. <laughs> wow. Um, so just to – this was something that I read recently. I forget where the what publication it was. And just having – this came out when mm. Hugh Hefner died that I don't know if this is too off topic. But so when Hugh Hefner died, he said, like, I want to be buried next to Marilyn Monroe. Oh. Right? Because that was the most famous centerfold that he ever did. Right. Until you realize that Hugh Hefner never met Marilyn Monroe. He bought the rights to those pictures from the original photographer and then used her body at the peak of her fame and said, oh, look, she's posing in Playboy, which was years afterwards. So he just piggybacked off of the fame that she was then getting. My gosh. Right. But then his eternal resting place (laughs) is now next to her. Right. So like. The ownership of her body by men continues after death. That's crazy. Well, the the even crazier part is there's somebody else. So, I mean, it's so much like gentlemen prefer blondes that people were spending money just to be physically near her at the table. Yeah, like that's what Hugh Hefner did. But uh, because it's in a mausoleum, Uh it's not in a it's not in a grave. Right. Um. So there are spots all around her, and the spot physically above her 
belonged to somebody. I don't know who it was, but I promised to link in the footnotes or in the notes uh, for this episode, you know, the the longer piece on this because it's it's really horrifying, oh but, but really cool to read, uh, really interesting to read. Um, so the man who bought the spot above her, really rich guy, married oh, to somebody else, made his wife follow his instructions that he be... <gasps> interred above Marilyn Monroe facing down. Oh, gross! Oh my god! Yeah, thanks for the warning, by the way, not right. to so, sip any be, coffee. I mean, even after death, like, just totally wow. desecrated, needing to be, because men just needed to, like, own the idea of Marilyn Monroe because oh she embodied god. sex for, like, a generation. Wow, that's so... Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> Isn't that the grossest thing you've that's ever heard? That's the grossest thing, and yet you're right. It's so interesting, and it's so telling on so many registers. I, yeah. Um, you know, one thing that, like, bugged me about... So, um, I like, I, I was thinking about this film as, like, a film about women and the different types of, like female desires or like stereotypes of female desires that it kind of toys with representing and that being kind of interesting and then um i think i think on like the imdb comments or something like that a really popular comment was that it or complaint was that it failed the bechtel test which i mean to me it makes sense that it failed the bechtel test because (laughs) it's a social satire about the relationships between men and women so i was kind of like you know it, it does make sense to me that it that it would, but... Um, I mean, it's a movie about the relationships between exactly. men and women. Exactly. Like, I'm not going to... F- yeah. Anyway. Exactly. So as many as many conversations as there are between, you know, the two central female characters, like, of course, they're going to be talking about... Oh, that's not true, even, because Lorelai talks to Piggy's wife, wife, and they talk about the diamonds. Oh, that's right. And they're not talking about men at that point. That's true. <laughs> yeah, and she does have a name. It's uh, Mrs. B. Mrs. Beekman? Beekman. Oh, does that count? <laughs> if she doesn't have a first oh, name? Oh, God, I don't know. Lady yeah. Beekman, does Lady that count? Beekman. Just having a title. <laughs> oh, God, maybe? But yeah, I was thinking about this movie as a as as a film about women and like what it does and the different kind of um, registers for feminism that we've kind of come up with since then. And I was thinking that there's some really upsetting moments in the movie, like... Um, when Dorothy and Malone, um, they're out, um, they're taking a walk together, and they're talking about Lorelai and Piggy, and, you know, Dorothy says, she makes some kind of joke about, well, you know, I think the crew will be upset if I throw Piggy overboard. And then Malone says, well, why is, uh, you know, well, why is Piggy to blame? Why isn't Dorothy to blame? And it's sort of like, well... Or, sorry, not Dorothy, but why isn't Lorelai to blame? And it's sort of like, well, I mean, Lorelai isn't exactly the, like, uh, anyways, the fact that he, and then that's, of course, when Dorothy gets really defensive and says, well, hey, no, what are you implying? Don't even go there. Um, But it never really gets fully addressed, this idea of, like, is, because at that point, Lorelai hasn't really done anything besides accept all of these excessive attentions that Sir Francis has been giving her, right? And is that really comparable to, you know, a married man of, like, a lot of money and influence deliberately using that influence to kind of, to, like, you know, to invite her into these situations? Like, is that really the same? 
And yet Malone's character bringing it up like that suggests that it kind of is, if not worse, because he kind of brings the focus onto that instead. Well, I think that I want to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. I mean, what he does say is that, I mean, he says, is it entirely Piggy's fault? Like, is there not some... Right. Because she is a willing party in this. Right. She is a willing party who is knowingly injecting herself into a domestic situation mm-hmm. with the intent of disrupting it. Right. Um, I do think that the movie does, oddly enough, kind of let men off the hook. I mean, the, like, Beekman's name, his nickname, is literally Piggy. Like, men are pigs. <laughs> right? And I mean, right. if, if we... Tr- if we translate that into 2017 speech i mean it's men are trash right like that's the right. that's the big buzz phrase right now right. which i don't whatever i don't think anybody who's <laughs> listening to this <laughs> would really be too upset like anybody who's still listening to netflix is really questioning where my politics lie um but i mean i think that there's some risk to just dismissing by saying like all men are trash, all men are mm-hmm. pigs, in that it almost removes some responsibility from them as, like, right. actors in, in like, as participants Oh, that's in a it. really interesting that, like, way to frame that, yeah. If all men are trash, then, like, mm-hmm. well, can you really blame right. them? Right, what and, else like, were you expecting? Oh, well, you know, we were expecting them to be, you know, incense, like, consenting, intelligent, and mindful adults, but, you know, yeah, exactly. I, I, like, get, I get what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, if if you if you push that narrative too far, that it's just like, well, he's a pig and she's Marilyn right. Monroe, which I mean, like everybody literally becomes a slack jawed idiot as soon as Marilyn Monroe exactly. walks in the room. The whole shtick is that men are powerless against her. They're mm-hmm. like, well, what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is. Yeah, there's that moment. There's also. Um, so when Henry Spofford III says, I don't like that man, his intentions don't seem pure, he says something to that effect, yeah. and I just ugh, love that kid so much. Um, but I'm kind of, I was kind of thinking, you know, there's, like, Piggy also steals the tiara back afterward, you know, denies having had any involvement or accountability to his wife, who's, you know, just being, like, dragged along as her husband gets her involved in, like, one horrible thing to another. But there's kind of no more talk of what Piggy is doing. Because the thing is, at least with Marilyn Monroe's character, Lorelai is, like, roundly and fully criticized for basically trying to convince somebody to give her something that really is not in their power to even give her. And but he's the one who gets it given back to. Like he's the that's rightful r- owner. Oh yeah, that's end. right. It's when not his that, wife. When they yeah. do that, like joke. Well, I mean, I th- I think that the idea there is that what's hers is his. Right. Like there is no there's no distinction, and Lady Beekman just isn't allowed to be an actor in her oh, own God. criminal proceedings. <laughs> yeah, even though she's the one who initiates them. Oops. But um, yeah, yeah, and so. So I think that, like, that kind of gets roundly and fully explored. Like, even when you have, like, Dorothy's character going, like, Lorelai, you didn't. Like, what? Like how could you do it? And, and she just gets kind of like, what? I didn't do anything wrong, and now it's mine. And it's very, like, you know, the, at least the tone of the film suggests that what she's done is not okay, even if it's not illegal or technically wrong. Right. But there's no such, like, there's no equivalent treatment for Piggy. And maybe it's because Piggy, like, so many of the secondary male cast are just, you know, 
they're just these stock characters, right? Yeah. They're not fully developed or anything like that. Yeah, but, but uh, I mean, yeah. like Piggy, it, it's hinted that Piggy's going to be in trouble early on in the movie when he first dances with Lorelai. Right. Um, in that Malone kind of jokes that like, well, I bet she's not going to let him out of his room anymore. Like he's in the doghouse. Oh, right. Even though he's not. Like he's, <laughs> he's not even punished in that like joking domestic way. Exactly. Because he's just this old lech who's going to do whatever he wants because he's got <laughs> money in a diamond mine. Yeah, and... He's the only one who actually does any stealing in the film, even though the whole trial is about Lorelai's supposed theft. Right. Yeah. He gets brought in. He gets exposed as the thief. And then they do that joke of passing it around and eventually returning it to him. But I mean, where where was he going? He was going to... Was he going to back to South Africa? Was he actually going to Africa? Because it did seem like he was in trouble. Like, it yeah. seemed like he, or at least he was putting himself into some kind of exile because he knew he fucked up. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, That's man, true. I got caught again. Now I right. have to go back to Africa. I'm going to go check on the mines. <laughs> right. Um, which means just, like, I guess leave the continent until his wife isn't mad anymore. <laughs> but again, he's got the freedom to do that. He can yeah. just go and, yeah, hang out in Africa and probably get up to all sorts of bullshit there, too. <laughs> um, Yeah. So, anyways, that was the kind of moment where I was like, you know, there are still some unanswered questions. And it's still 1953. Exactly. It's still 1950s Hollywood. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Were you surprised by how, like, beefcake this movie got at the, uh, at, like, I mean, like, men's bodies on display? Oh, in the, uh, yeah, in that famous... In, in the uh, gymnasium scene oh my where God, they're all training. Which is so hilarious. Like, a little bit. In their flesh-colored bathing yeah. suits. In the beginning, with the Roman soldiers holding his uh, <laughs> holding his saber in a very suggestive position, yeah, um, I was surprised by that too. Not necessarily like, and you know, and this is where I was starting to think about like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, this is an experiment of like the female sexual gaze and all that. But what's really what I thought was really interesting was less the like seeing the beefcake because I just I, I don't know I don't know enough about the genre to know if that was like an unusual thing but um uh what was really interesting is that you know they have to work really hard to get us to think about these men as objects oh desire like I, ju- I was just thinking about the camera shots and that there's a lot of like and the facial expressions she has to make exactly at the, guy's the and- facial expressions and like because when I'm thinking about like the way that female, the female or the male gaze gets talked about in like cinematography studies and stuff, um, I'm thinking like Laura Mulvey and all that. Um, it's supposed to be that the male gaze is implicit, right? That you're, um, you know, like the f- the camera slowly pans in on like a on the length of a woman's body, and that's supposed to be an implicit. There's supposed to be a, an implicit kind of male voyeuristic gaze there. That's how the theory works, and then. But then in that one, we actually have to see, like, we actually have to have filmed for us Jane Russell looking at these men. I thought that was really interesting because this is such an unusual, like, 
type of visual representation that they really have to handhold us through the process of like well, yeah and it's while okay. she's singing a song about exactly like wanting to hook up with dudes <laughs> exactly and while she's dancing and then she ends up in this pool you know like the wet woman and all yeah. that well it's very... okay so fun fact um you know the scene where she's like where she gets knocked into the pool yeah where she's on her hands and knees and she ends up getting knocked in by a diver right totally an accident oh my god i was wondering about that. she wasn't yeah because that looks like a yeah it looks like it went wrong and it's exactly. because it did she was not supposed to end up in the pool that's so funny yeah but they ended up just trying it and they were like all right cool i like it <laughs> did they carry that shot through did she just kind of come up and continue to play it off or i don't i don't remember I if there's remember. a cut there or yeah. not um, oh, that's And it seemed so pretty funny. coordinated for them to pick her up. I don't know. But, yeah, it seemed odd that, like, this woman who's had this, like, perfect updo this whole movie. And, like, exactly. everybody does the whole movie that all of a sudden she's got this wet hair just, like, yeah. draping over herself. <laughs> Although it kind of works because, like, she got a cold shower at the end to, like, right. relax. Relax. It's okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah, I was wondering about that, actually, the second time around. The first time, I didn't really notice that. But the second time, I was like, you know, they're not doing a very good job of showing her falling into the pool. It's almost as though it was an accident. Yeah, she gets knocked when one guy just, like, slightly misjudges the dive. <laughs> and she just gets taken in with him. Yeah, that had to have hurt a little bit. It couldn't have felt good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, what did you feel about the, uh, like, the musical elements of this movie? They're like... The songs themselves, the performances, like, did that do anything for you, like, aesthetically yeah. or emotionally? Or? Yeah, actually, it did. Um, earlier you were saying, so when you were saying uh, that this was your first Marilyn Monroe film, you didn't really know what to expect, um, and that this was at once Marilyn Monroe having, like, reached the apex of her being taken seriously as an actress, but then also the beginning of her establishing this caricature. I was thinking um, the the opening number, um, the Little Rock number, I was noted. I kept noticing things the second time watching this movie, like um, Marilyn Monroe is a really good dancer. She, um, like, kind of next to Jane Russell, I, I, f- I found that, like, while Jane Russell has a lot of, the, like, the amazing, you know, eyebrows working and the facial expressions and and everything, she wasn't as good of a dancer as Marilyn Monroe was. Like, I, f- I, f- I noticed that, like, Marilyn R- Monroe made really the most of every subtle little gesture, not just kind of doing the dance moves, but really trying to embody it, um, and not necessarily in a, like, a, I mean, yes, in a sexualized way, but also in a way that was clearly her trying to be in character which I thought was really interesting but yeah it was in the dance numbers that that was really the only time that I felt really invited to compare the two women as such Mm. um, rather than through the rest the rest (laughs) of the movie I don't know did you have a similar experience not really I think that for me mostly it was just kind of like ah it's jarring like you're not in sync Uh, in a way that I would expect you to be in like a sister act which is what it seems like they're trying to do Mm -hmm. although I guess the choreographer worked with both women trying to make sure like get your character across right like actually Jane Russell play up the sex and Uh. Monroe, you need to play down the sex a little bit more oddly (laughs) yeah enough um that they needed to, to to try to make that happen but just in general I didn't feel I mean musical number wise I wasn't into it in the way that I am with some musicals. And yeah. I mean, maybe that's just the way of the time. Like in the modern day, musicals are incredibly self-referential, uh. right? Like they'll they'll make reference to the fact that, and now I'm singing. Like I'm thinking of the musical episode of Buffy or, oh, you know, like gotcha. Moulin Rouge or like a lot of, uh, a lot of movies will do, you know, 
pop songs and they'll do like reference like you know yeah yeah yeah. Uh, as opposed to just like sincerely just like breaking out into an original song that you've mm-hmm. never heard before and then doing <laughs> it again and then with it rarely being spectacular in a way that i would kind of hope from mm-hmm. a musical so i was just kind of like okay this is like a pleasant experience but i'm not <laughs> particularly into it past the first minute or so <gasps> That's really interesting. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because it is like, okay, now this musical number is starting. Um, and the camera angles don't really change all that much either. Like, yes, you get more sweeping. Uh, you get more movement in the shots too. But um, it really is just like, okay, everybody break into song and choreograph dance now. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that, that, that comes from being adapted pretty directly from a stage musical. Right. Which, I mean, a lot of these movies were. It was just, okay, let's take that, let's put it on screen, let's do some fancy shit with a camera, yeah. and go. I don't know if, was this a stage musical before? Because it was adapted yeah, it was from like, a novel, but... Yeah, so the novel have... was adapted into a stage musical. Oh. Um, and I guess there were some actresses who just, like, didn't want the Lorelei part because they felt like the, oh, the person okay. who had done it originally was just, like, so iconic for it. Oh, wow. And then Marilyn Monroe was just, like, like <laughs> shit on you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of with you with the musical numbers. I kind of, some of the songs are really catchy and sometimes I really adore the choreography. Like, I really love the choreography for that, um, like, anyone here for love song. Um, I thought the choreography was really great and hilarious, but, uh, you know, as a number, you know, it it just kind of was. Mm -hmm. Obviously, accepting that Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Like, there is so much to unpack there. But otherwise, the other... Yeah, now that I think about it, the other songs, I don't know that they did make that much of an impression on me. Oh, God. Like, if they weren't there, do you think you'd notice? Except for Diamonds Are Girls. I mean, like, if the Little Rock song wasn't there, if the Bon Voyage song, I forget what it's called, even, that went on for, like, 10 minutes. Oh, yeah, Bye Bye Baby. Yeah, actually, maybe. You know, it does remind me that they are supposed to be performers, that they are entertainers, because otherwise I think I would have forgotten. Right. But... (laughs) Um, and, you know, the ridiculous, like, reenacting of Diamonds Are Girl's Best Friend in the, in the courtroom. <laughs> yeah, you know, does make a little more sense when you've had that build up. Um, and I, yeah, and I guess it does kind of set the foundation for, like, why. So one thing I did really like um, about the movie was that um, anytime there was an issue that had to be resolved, anytime there was a conflict, like Lorelai and Dorothy got out of it by either relying on each other, their friendship for each other, or by virtue of their own talents. They're stranded in France and they have no money, but they are just that good. And so they were able to, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> would be nice if you could just kind of pick up and start singing in a cafe and suddenly expect And become music. the headliner of a exactly. show in France like days after. The yeah. American dancers. Oh, what a novelty. <laughs> just, <laughs> just ridiculous. But yeah, I kind of, I actually do really like the song Bye Bye Baby, but I think it's because I like to reenact that song by singing a version of it to my puppy. (laughs) (laughs) Every Um, time you leave the house, you're like, all right, I need to add eight minutes to my, to my regimen so I can get through this whole number. Yes. How can I make my partner roll his eyes as much as possible before we leave for school? You just teach him the, the harmonies. Oh, he knows them. And then he gets in on it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. Did you feel the same way about the musical numbers? Um, I don't know. I just, I mean, my experience of enjoyment while watching them was rarely there. Mm -hmm. I wasn't wishing they would go away, but I also wasn't just like, 
I can't wait to buy this album or exactly. I can't wait to watch this movie again to experience this. I felt like, I mean, they dance better than I can, but it's also <laughs> like I didn't, if I paid money to see this as a like dancing act, mm-hmm. I would probably feel like I didn't get my money's worth. Yeah, that's true. That is a good point. It, it kind of wasn't, wasn't terrible, but it wasn't. Yeah, it's just, I mean, yeah. like, if, if these two women can just, like, walk into a bar in France and become a headliner act, like, <laughs> these are not those women. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, if it sounds good to you, then I suppose we could wrap this up the same way that we always do. So I'll cool. ask you, uh, on your own Netflix profile, did this get a thumbs up or a thumbs down? As well, if you could let me know your, your MVP from the movie. So um, whether it's in front of, behind the camera, who you feel is, like, the standout entity behind this right. movie. So I did give it a thumbs up. I was I was very I was feeling very, you know, indulging in the delightful silliness of the whole thing. It's, That's the point, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, MVP, I You know, up until this point I might have said up until this conversation I might have said uh Jane Russell's character Dorothy because as I said to you, you know, I just found I just found her a really memorable character, but as I'm thinking, as I'm thinking about all the stuff that I really spent the most time talking about, it might actually be Lorelai, ah, if not Henry Spofford the Third. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. He's definitely a standout character. Like, there's just, and they don't, they don't indulge in it too much. Yeah, it's exactly. just he's there for the joke, and then they do this great callback sequence too, exactly. and it's just, and then he's done. Exactly. It's wonderful. Short, sweet, moderate, love it. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> Short and sweet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, for me, thumbs up as well. I mean, it's not like, a, oh my God, this is yeah. a classic that we need to watch forever. Um, but I enjoyed it. There's no question of that. I, I'm doing the same thing where I'm like, oh, Jane Russell was just like, while watching the movie, mm-hmm. I was like, I enjoy you a lot. And why do people not talk about you in this movie? Right. Like, why is this actually the first time that I'm hearing your name? But yeah, I'm just like, and maybe this is why she was what she was but i'm just like i'm more captivated by just like what marilyn monroe was doing yeah and like the business of what marilyn monroe was up to exactly um i'm really curious about that but i mean if jane russell wasn't in the movie i wouldn't have enjoyed it anywhere near as much like without without her or with maybe like a lesser actress with like less of a bite to her yeah like this might have been a thumbs down movie that i was still fascinated by marilyn monroe yeah exactly she's just the perfect foil for marilyn monroe's character yeah all right well thank you so much for coming on and doing this i i had no idea what to expect from this movie and if i'm being totally honest i had no idea what to expect from you but (laughs) you have been amazing and this has been such a great conversation i'm so grateful for it um is there anywhere that people can find you or uh, Um, anything that you want to plug or i mean if not then i can just (laughs) the most would probably be that um uh, as uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, I do narrate occasionally on Liminalia. Um, I'm going to be a guest on one of the upcoming episodes as well. So do listen to that. So you can find out more about Liminalia on the Instagram page at LiminaliaCast or the Facebook page, which is the Liminalia podcast. Um, I believe there's a SoundCloud account and uh, blog a Tumblr account as well associated with those. But uh, I have no idea what they are on the top <laughs> of my head. 
So the uh, the rest of the time you're swimming in academia and basically uh, right on. Well, <laughs> if anybody needs any tutoring or editing, then I'm I'm available on the English department's website. <laughs> All right, perfect. Well, thank you, thank you again so much for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. And that's it. That's a wrap on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. If you check out the post about this episode, you're going to find links off to all the places that you can find Liminalia that Nami mentioned. So we've got Tumblr, SoundCloud, Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. Got a little more further reading up there for you. So I've got links off to Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe's Wikipedia pages. As well, I finally remembered where I read that article about Marilyn Monroe's internment and her whole legacy continuing after death. So that piece was written by Courtney Enlow. It was written for Pajiba, and it's called We Are Forever Merely Bodies, Eternally Just Things. So absolutely do check that one out. Uh, you can also find a link off to episode 79, where I talked with Krista Hoog about Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, since we briefly compared Gentlemen for Blondes to Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. And last but not least, you'll be able to find either Netflix or Amazon links for all the other movies and series that we mentioned, so things like Pan's Labyrinth, Scandal, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and Singing in the Rain. You can follow Netflix on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, Twitter at Netflix Pod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore. And we're on SoundCloud and Instagram as Netflix Podcast. You can also follow me on Letterboxd, which is a movie tracking diary review social media platform thing as Dylan Clark Moore. You can also support this show in all sorts of ways. One of them is by subscribing, whether that's on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And that'll make sure that every new episode comes straight to you so you don't have to come and find it. While you're there, you can also drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think, as well as to bump us up the charts. If you feel like going even further above and beyond, you can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of a Patreon campaign. Uh, What that means is that you can support this project monthly. Unfortunately, it does cost money to produce these things. I'm sure there are cheaper ways to do it, but I'm an idiot. And if you want to help out, you can pledge your support over at patreon.com and search for Netflix, or you can hit the support Netflix button at the top of our blog at, once again, netflix.ca. This podcast is produced and edited by yours truly, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog, because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.